Back when Trump was first running for president, David Jones made himself a promise. Man, if Trump even elected, I'm getting up out of the country. Everybody was talking that stuff. Yeah, man, we gotta go, we gotta go. Like a lot of us though, he thought it was never actually gonna happen. But then, it did. Yeah, man, I, I was just kind of dumbfounded. Like, you gotta be kidding me. How on earth? I mean, never did I imagine that it was gonna go this far. Unlike a lot of people who said the same exact thing about Trump, David kept his promise. As a black man, David just couldn't imagine himself staying in a country run by someone he considers racist. So by March of 2017, just a few months after Trump was sworn into office, David was gone. I put some things into place. I moved out of my apartment, threw everything in storage. And so uh, things worked out to where 2017, my son graduated college, got him out of my pocket. And then I said, okay, here we go. From PRX and KPBS, this is Port of Entry. Today, a story about black expats, people who've left the U.S. and found some refuge from racism on the other side of the border. Stay with me. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. This is Chef David. It's Friday, August 7th. I'm currently on a tour bus heading down to the city of Tequila, where we're going to be doing samples of tequila all day long. David Jones lives in Mexico, just south of the U.S.-Mexico border in a somewhat sleepy beach town called Rosarito. It's cheap, like super cheap, especially by American standards. So David uses the money he saves on living expenses for vacations, like this one he recently took to Guadalajara, where COVID restrictions aren't very restrictive yet. The scenery here is absolutely majestic. There are towering mountains. There's the tequila volcano. And as far as your eye can see, agave plants. We're pulling over to another tequila spot. Everybody's happy. Everybody's taking a shot of tequila on their way out off of the bus. Yeah! I just had my shot of tequila. 
I think my goatee and my beard has more of it than in my mouth, but it's okay. I have been to over 40 different countries, but I've never seen a group of strangers come together like this in my travels in my life. They're sitting here calling me Uncle David. I can't explain the feeling I have right now. It's overwhelming, exciting. I'm living my dreams. I'm living my best life. When David's not off vacationing in Guadalajara and other parts of the world, he's in Rosarito, where he lives alone in a nice casita with a view of the Pacific Ocean. All right, so front door is open. And let me see if I can switch the camera around. There we go. This is what it looks like at the front door. We got mountain views in the front, estuary, and the beach is right over there. <laughs> you really can't beat it. And the best part of this new expat life? I mean, the rent here is cheap. The electricity is cheap. I could turn my lights on and leave them on all day. We get billed for electricity every two months. My, my last electric bill was like $7.15 for, for a two-month bill. You know, I mean, I pay $600 a month for this place and I can walk to the beach in five minutes. It's just, it has everything that you could ever want and then some. David is 51. He's a confident guy and super decisive. And at key times in his life, those two traits have combined to create a kind of blind spontaneity that has led him down different paths. Like back when he was in high school, he decided he was gonna join the military. And the very day he graduated, he did it. I joined the Navy in 1987, toured the world and retired at 2007 at the age of 38. After retiring from the military, David decided to try his hand at a few civilian jobs. He worked at AT&T for a while, but wanted something different. So he went to the police academy and became a cop, but he couldn't stand being hated by the very people he was trying to serve. He wasn't sure what his next move was going to be, so he let spontaneity be his guide. On Christmas Eve, I was visiting a friend. She said, well, David, what are you gonna do now? I said, ah, maybe I go back to school, get my master's degree in business. And uh, she said, well, David, as much as you cook, I thought maybe you go to culinary school. I said, you know what? That's not a bad idea. And it was at that exact moment, I got on my phone, I looked up culinary schools in Dallas. I saw the first thing that came up was La Cordon Bleu. I went to that website, expressed my interest. The day after Christmas, they called me. That following Monday, I was enrolled. And that was that. <laughs> when David got out of culinary school, he scored a job at Ritz-Carlton Dallas and then the House of Blues. He liked the work, but a stranger planted an idea in his head that would eventually dictate his next move. I was at a cigar lounge, uh, smoking cigars with a friend of mine, and this guy walks in, and he comes and he gets sound, and I sit down on a table, and he starts talking about Baja. I said, okay, I'm listening, and, and keep in mind, I've been to places like Thailand, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia. I've met military retirees living in countries outside of America. And I'm like, okay, well, that sounds seems pretty cool. And next thing we know, we get to talk, and he's telling me how extremely cheap it is to live here. And I'm like, okay, he's giving me contacts of people to get in contact with. So Baja was on David's brain when Donald Trump first launched his presidential campaign. And that's when David made up his mind that if Trump won, he was out. 
I had this conversation with a good friend of mine. I said, this is about to be, America's about to go to hell in a handbasket with gasoline underwear on because this is crazy. And it's and this is exactly what happened so far. So when I got everything that could fit in the little two-seater of mine, I drove from Dallas, Texas to Baja, California, and ultimately moved to Baja sight unseen. And I've been here ever since. The math was a big part of what motivated the move, too. David's pension from the Navy, mixed with the fact that he'd worked hard to get rid of all his debt, and that Mexico is so much cheaper than the U.S., it means that David can live in Mexico for the rest of his life without ever needing to work again. And work-free life? It sounds pretty nice. You know, my everyday routine is normally I go walk the beach, do about six and a half miles on the beach, and then I come back here and probably throw on some Netflix or light, some, light a cigar and sit outside and relax, listen to music. David's only got a few complaints so far. For one, Rosarito gets a little colder than he's used to. I assumed it was hot. It was not. And in March, that, that night, it was down to like 41 degrees. I'm like, wait, 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 wait a minute. No, this is not right. I, I thought it was going to be much warmer than that. And the second thing I did in research was the dating scene. Rough here. <laughs> but you got to understand, when it comes to Americans here, I'm probably the youngest retiree here. And everybody I know, it's basically in their 60s and up. Up, up, up. Oh, look, it's nothing wrong with that, but you got to bring in something else, a little extra to the table besides some of that other stuff because, you know, I'm not trying to take care of nobody. <laughs> well, maybe David would have more luck dating some locals closer to his age, but his Spanish is still minimal at best. And that's not uncommon for expats, black, white, or whatever, especially at the border. Lots of them never even bother to learn Spanish. And look, that language barrier is just one of the things that could bother the locals about the expat community in Mexico. There are many other things, bad and good, that expats bring to the country. We're not going to go too deep into all those economic and social impacts, but we can't talk about expats in Mexico without quickly talking about money. The huge influx of American money definitely helps the economy here. But at the same time, it inflates prices so high that oftentimes locals get priced out. And the only people who can afford to live near the beach are American expats like David. Baja's beaches are just jam-packed with expats with steady incomes. And at the same time, lots of locals in the region live in poverty or are just struggling to get by. It's a complicated issue. David says he's never moving back to the U.S. Ever. He just doesn't think it's a good place for black men right now. When I look back now and I look at uh, the brother that was shot in his home from eating ice cream because the young lady was on the wrong floor. When I look at a uh, Fort Worth police officer that shot this lady from outside of her home. Uh, we're just saying you got a call from a neighbor across the street saying the lights were on after 2 o'clock and you shoot this young lady inside of a home after you say, put your hand, police, you don't even say police, put your hands up and you shoot. There's so many things going on there. George Floyd, I mean, 
it's so much and I'm trying to figure out I don't know how it got started but it has been escalating every other week every other day and it's it's bad but things are bad in Mexico too Tijuana was named the most dangerous city in the world for the second year in a row because of its out-of-control murder rate and cartel violence. David's aware of the danger, but still. This is what I tell a lot of people. And they always say, is it safe in Mexico? I said, turn on your television at 6 o'clock in the morning, finish up at the 10 o'clock news tonight, and then call me tomorrow. And you tell me how safe it is where you live. People are always worried about danger when they decide to cross the border, but they're so accustomed to the danger in their own neighborhood, they don't even think about it. It's normal to them. You got more problems there than you'll ever see here. Racism exists in Mexico. Of course it does. We actually talked about the racism black migrants in Mexico are facing in a past episode. But when you're black and American, Mexicans tend to focus on the American part more than the skin color. David says for the most part, he's treated like a king because people see him first and foremost as an American with American dollars to spend. There was this one recent incident though. David was coming back through the U.S.-Mexico border from San Diego. And because of COVID restrictions, which say only essential travel is allowed through the border right now, he got hassled by a Mexican border agent. I had my bags. I was just coming off travel. Show my passport card, and they immediately asked me, uh, "Was I essential personnel, or where? And where was I going?" I said, "No, but you know, I live here." And she was like, "Well, our government has basically said to turn away all Americans if you're not a so essential personnel." And I'm like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> David pulled out a copy of his lease he just happened to have on him. He showed it to the border agent and explained that he had to get back because it really is the only place he lives now. The border agent hesitated as she examined the piece of paper. It was very frightening to know that I'm, the place I call home, I couldn't get to. <laughs> but she let me through. So, But uh, it had not been the experience of a lot of people that came there after me. And I think solely on complexion, if you ask me, because there was another guy in front of me that got turned away. Uh, that was african-american as well but i mean it was just the fact that i had a lease and i'm like come on you guys gotta let me through so that was scary and because of that experience he hasn't crossed back to the u.s since so i don't want to get stuck over there yeah Mexico is the most popular destination in the world for American expats. The U.S. State Department estimates that about 1.5 million Americans live there. And David is one of a growing number of black American expats who now call Mexico home. There's no easy way to get an official count of the number of black Americans in Mexico. But anecdotally, David says he's seeing more and more. There's an entire Facebook group called Black Expats in Mexico. You will be surprised how many and how far spread out in Mexico we are. It's, it's amazing. And I'm like, oh, man, if I want to go here, I contact this person as they give me all the information about it. You know, and so we're here. But yes, it's because it is in America's mind unfathomable that we as African-Americans can do the same thing as Caucasians do. And that's why they don't think about it. 
Yes, we can live outside the country. Yes, we have incomes that we don't have to worry about the next thing or the next, just like you, but it's, it's American culture. It's that they can't fathom that us being able to live in the same manner that they do. It's just the way it is. David says he's always trying to convince more of his black friends to move down to Mexico. Sure, he's living the life and wants them to live that life too. But his move to Mexico was about so much more than saving money, going on tequila tours and chilling at the beach. For him, moving to Mexico has been like releasing this huge pressure valve, the release being the invisible weight and mental load of racism in America. David just wants more of his friends to feel that relief. But most of his homies just can't fathom living outside the U.S. So it's unfortunate that they don't understand that it does not take much to live here, but their fear of living out of the country, the fear of unknown, I think my fear was broken of that being in the military. My name's Omar and uh, my wife. And I'm Aquila, we're the Black UGs. Helping black people get over their fears of living overseas is the name of Omar and Aquila's game. We're a family of four. We actually uh, left the country uh, back in 2016 and uh, started our journey as expats. And uh, in so doing, we've begun to put together resources and a platform where other expats can assist in providing uh, information to people in America, black people in America, on how they can uh, make their exodus. More on the Black UGs when we come back. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry. The Park Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. Omar Dames was born with an intense desire to travel. I was a dreamer. I'm a dreamer. I used to look across the ocean and wonder, uh, you know, what's over there? You know, I would like, I want to go. <laughs> I want to go over there. And, and so um, it's always kind of been, pardon me, since I was a little, little um, boy. And there's a movie, you know, Five Goes West, right? Look, Papa, water. Is it the ocean? Yes. Keep walking. <laughs> that, that, that movie was like very impactful. I'm like, wow, this, you know, this guy's traveling all over the world. I want to do that someday. I know it sounds silly, but for me, it really made an impact. And I wanted to understand, you know, how people lived in different areas. Right. Um, maybe maybe their experience isn't like mine. And that was always something that was lingering in my head. Maybe there's a place where things are different.
and Aquila Dames, she also knew from an early age about the allure of the great big world all around her. As a child, I actually grew up, as I mentioned, in upstate New York. So uh, we lived right on the border of Canada. So I grew up going across the border into Canada pretty much early on as a child. So I was familiar with how things were drastically different on the Canadian side of the falls as opposed to the American and state side. So that's something that I think was, you know, sort of impactful and left an imprint on me. When Omar and Aquila got married and then became parents to two boys, their whole worldview shifted, just like it does for a lot of folks. So, you know, early into our marriage, it was something that he always talked about in terms of wanting to possibly live overseas, but it wasn't something that I can conceptualize for a long time uh, because our kids were small and I just had sort of bought into all of the um, you know, mysticism about, you know, other places being scary and weird and violent and all those things, you know. But as their boys got older, those words, scary, weird, violent, they started feeling more like descriptions of the U.S. As more and more deaths of people of color being killed by police started making headlines, Omar and Aquila began the kind of lessons no parent should ever have to give their kids. Don't go anywhere alone. Keep your phones charged. Make sure you're ready to use your phone's video camera at the drop of a dime. If you buy something, make sure you put it in a bag and have the receipt on hand. They've been tempered. Um, they're knowledgeable. They realize, you know, don't put your hoodie on. Even though it's the dead of winter and it's negative 20 degrees outside, do not put that hoodie on your head. When Omar was a kid, he had his share of scary experiences with racism. One time, while living in Georgia back in the 90s, his cousin was getting picked on, so he stepped in and got in a fistfight with some white kids. He was not prepared for what happened next. Like a mob of like 50 people with the sheriff with guns uh, came to my aunt's house and they were, you know, talking about putting me in a tree. And it was just, it was, uh, it was... Yeah, well, that was bad. And it was, you know, I made a terrible decision. Of course, I shouldn't have, you know, put hands on the child. Shouldn't have done that. But the response was 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 overwhelming. And it really kind of, you know, in my mind, uh, left an impact. And, you know, again, like I said, as a father, uh, not wanting to have my children experience anything remotely close to that. So to keep something like that from happening, the life lessons for his two boys continued. Omar says it's basically a constant conversation. And still, armed with all the knowledge about how to stay safe, there have been times when his kids have feared for their lives. My son, when he, um, grad after he graduated, uh, we had, you know, went back to New York for a little while. And he was working uh, at a um, agency, a call center. And <clears throat> he was, you know, waiting for the bus to come. And he called me in a panic. And um, he was having a panic attack, and I, you know, I says, you know, well, what's wrong? Like he says, he says these cops, they, they, they're, they're driving by me. They keep driving by me, and they're looking at me, and they're driving really slow. He says, I'm scared, Dad. I don't, I don't know what to do. And he was crying, and I says, well, you know, well, take a deep breath, put the phone to your ear, keep talking to me, don't make eye contact, 
look down, but keep an eye on them um, as they're moving forward, but don't let them see you looking at them. That's the conversation that I have with my kids. They've both resigned to say that, you know, they probably don't want to have children when they get older because they don't think that children should have to live like that. These are the conversations that we have. The conversations and extra precautions were fine for a while, but then things started getting really scary for black boys and men. In 2015, actually, with the Trayvon Martin situation and his death, along with Mike Brown, and it just was a time that it felt like it was time to explore something different. I cried. Uh, when, when I saw Trayvon, I saw my son. For me, he was just going to the store, <laughs> you, you know, and it, it, really, it really bothered me. Like, it, it, really, uh, it really bothered me deeply. And so, you know, it's filled with anger. There's a lot of anger. Anger that you, can't, you couldn't really express or articulate. It reminded me of some experiences I had growing up. You know, the stories that I heard growing up from my, from my elders. It was all of those things all condensed into one. You know, as a mother, you know, a parent always wants to, I believe most parents at least, want to try to provide the best options for their children. You know, you want them to be safe, you want them to be able to make their mistakes and still be able to come home at night. You know, for, for me, it, it was definitely the, the crucible, you know, of, um, of this uptick in violence against uh, black bodies that was the deciding factor. As a father, I feel a responsibility to keep my family safe. But when society prohibits you from doing that, what do you do? When, when there's nothing that you can do to keep them safe, whether they go to school, because at that time there was a lot of school shootings, whether they're just going to the store, you know. So th those factors uh, weighed on me heavily and um, for me, it was just logical. You know, it just made sense. Like, okay, we can't have safety here. We can't have peace here. Well, let's find a place where we can. So they went to find that place. And they joined the ranks of American expats living better versions of their lives overseas. The first step was a scouting trip to Panama. No, we had never been there. Um, I wanted to go to Spain. My wife did not want to go that far. She was afraid still. I'm going to be honest. She just was a little timid. I'm like, okay, well, you know, let's, you know, go to Panama. It's, you know, kind of American. You know, they have the canal there. They, they use U.S. dollars. Uh, and so it was just a convenient uh, spot to actually, you know, kind of get her some peace because she, <laughs> she didn't want to go all the way overseas to Europe. And once we went to the scout trip, I was really like, okay, this is something I feel like we could really do simply because it just was a much more like tranquil type of relaxing experience once we got to Panama. I remember that everything just sort of slowed down. It just seemed like it was not, you know, bogged down with the rat race. 
once we did the scout trip and we came back, I really felt like it was something I could commit to. And so, you know, we told the kids, like, this is really what we think we want to do. And they were all for it. They were totally on board. After the scouting trip sealed the deal, the next thing Omar and Aquila did was downsize. They sold things, put stuff in storage, and got ready to go. They have their own marketing business, so they can work anywhere as long as they have a good internet connection. The biggest challenge was figuring out the school situation for their kids. They found a school in Panama, but had to get all school records translated and notarized. The kids, by the way, were stoked about the move. I actually have some footage of it when we were on the plane, and my son was like, literally like trembling. He was so excited, bursting with excitement. Panama was great. The family moved into a nice condo right on the beach. The view that we had was an ocean-like view, you know, and there was mountains and birds, and it just was just a beautiful experience. And I'm like, okay, this could be something. If I remain open and not have so much of having to have my specific U.S. creature comforts, I might get something out of this experience. So I sort of opened up and allowed myself to see what was going to unfold, you know. From Panama, the family decided they wanted to keep moving. So they enrolled the boys in a homeschool program and went to Colombia. And then they just kept going. Panama, Colombia, Mexico, Nicaragua, Spain, and then Portugal. Omar and Aquila didn't completely escape the threat of racism. It's everywhere. But they say it just felt different. It is not anywhere near similar to what is uh, here in the U.S. There's like there's racism here in the U.S. that's oftentimes violent or uh, very suppressive uh, to where it prohibits you from uh, being able to have forward mobility. Uh, Whereas in these other places, it's more of a bias. It's more of a prejudice or um, a typecasting as opposed to we're going to set up systems to suppress you. <laughs> so so it's not it's not this. It's not the same at all. Police in other countries can look super intimidating in some parts of the world, including parts they travel to. Police are armed with automatic weapons and look more like soldiers heading to war than police patrolling a city. Like, for example, one of the first things you see when you cross the border from San Diego to Tijuana are a few armed guards dressed in camo, bulletproof vests, and giant guns. And yet, Omar and Aquila say everything was gravy. They just didn't feel threatened by police in other countries the way they do in the U.S. For once, they didn't feel like they were the targets. It certainly wasn't the threat of violence or feeling like if I'm driving down the street, you know, I could get stopped and something could terribly go awry. Like, I never experienced that in any place that we lived outside of the States. Yeah, like... Like even like even in Panama, right? The, their cops like have like guns, like assault rifles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they're all like standing outside the banks with assault rifles, and that was a bit okay. staggering. Like, whoa, okay, wait, hold up, pause. That guy has a big gun, and you know, in other places such as Mexico, same thing. But I never felt threatened. Mm-hmm. I never felt like um, something could happen to me right. from these police people. You know, so that was that was a bit different. Even in um, Portugal, 
you know, the police were they were actually kind of cool. Like They were just kind of down to earth people like, you know, and um, it was a different type of consideration when it came to police these other from these other places you will every once in a while have a a police officer that will try to pull you over and maybe try to you know as they call it quote unquote gringo Gringo. you you know and try to get like a little bribe out of you or something like that you know and you're just like i don't Um, i don't know you know no entiendo i don't understand you know i you know so When we talked to the Dames family, they were in Florida, hunkering down for the pandemic. But since then, they picked up and moved to Playa del Carmen in Mexico, a town about an hour south of Cancun. They say the thing they keep coming back to, the thing they're most thankful for when it comes to living overseas, is the way it made their kids feel. It does give them a level of balance because they're sort of like, okay, maybe I don't have to experience this, you know. Yeah. Maybe this doesn't have to be a part of my path, you know. So Black UGs, how you doing? So Omar here. Everybody's doing good. And now Omar and Aquila want more Black people in the U.S. to have that same realization. Please like and subscribe. Uh, check us out here at uh, Instagram, at, uh, Black UGs, also Twitter. They created the Black UGs brand on Instagram and started a Facebook group. They've also started doing videos, sharing their experiences and other Black travelers' stories about living abroad. You know, we don't necessarily feel um, at peace in our own country, so we sort of felt like refugees a That's little bit. Technically, you know, and we felt like, you know, hey, let's go ahead and see if there is another place on other places that will provide that sense of safety and surety that we feel all human beings are entitled to. Listen, I love America. She may not love me back, but I love her. Right. Like a funny relationship. Right. (laughs) But um, I love America. Um, My my family, you know, fought in wars for this country. You know, um, we've suffered and helped to develop this place. I will never under any circumstance give up my citizenship rights to this country because I feel I contributed to building it. And so did my ancestors. I think before the pandemic, white America didn't really see or get it, like like in mass, right? I think with the pandemic, you know, everybody having to stay in the house and this is just all you're seeing on the internet all the time and it's just coming up over and over and over and it's just outrageous after the the George Floyd uh, situation is just kind of erupted, right? And so, but that pressure, that absolute exhaustion has been with some people for quite some time. Even though, you know, the the UN has recognized black people as refugees, most people don't realize that. They don't know that. And there are some countries that will recognize African-Americans and and provide them with uh, refugee status. Some countries won't. But the objective is to take people that are under this crucible, this pressure, 
this crushing burden and let them know that there are options and there is information available to provide you with another path if you choose, if that's what you choose. Um, I think that what that does is it lifts that that burden. It, it, it actually alleviates that depression and um, it provides uh, hope and it gives people something to move toward in a time where there is clearly a cultural crisis in America. I feel safer here in Mexico than I have ever felt in America in my life as a black man. That I can say. Here's David Jones again. And I give you a prime example. Two days ago, I'm out hanging out at my favorite little spot on the beach. I had a bottle of scotch. I had a few drinks out of it. I'm smoking a cigar. I'm in a hurry to go see some friends. I'm zipping through the traffic. Police pulls me over. I said, okay. Now, in my mind, if I was in America, I'm thinking, okay, do I need to turn on my phone, start recording, because I might not make it out of this ordeal. Chances are I might not make it if I was in America. This guy comes up, hey, I saw you going, you're going kind of fast. You're going through the traffic and blah, blah, blah. Oh, by the way, I smell alcohol. You got your registration. I pull the registration on my wallet. He holds the registration like he said, blow right here. He's like, oh, I smell alcohol. While he get to talking, 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 I just pull out my wallet. I pull out $40 and his hand was sitting right there. I said, look, man, I hope you have a good day. He slid it. He's okay, bye-bye. In America, stuck in that same situation, a black man pulled over after having a few drinks. David says he thinks things could get real bad real fast. All I can say is, I'd rather be out of $40 than to be out of my life. You get what I'm saying? And that's an issue in a culture that, yeah, it's not exactly professionally correct, but I get to live. How about that? And so uh, I, I deal with it. I'd rather, I, like I said, I'd be out of a few dollars than to, to be, than my mom be out of a, out of a, of a son's life. And that's an issue in America that you really got to worry about. You just do. It's just the culture they've set. To connect with David Jones and other Black expats, search for the Black expats and Black in Tijuana groups on Facebook. You can find Omar and Aquila's Black UG's project on Facebook and Instagram. It's spelled B-L-A-C-U-G-E-E-S. Port of Entry is written and produced by Kinsey Moreland. Emily Jankowski is our director of sound design. Curtis Fox edits the show. Lisa Morissette is operations manager and John Decker is the Director of Programming. Port of Entry is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. I'm Alan Liliental. Thank you for listening.
next time on the podcast. The Cora, you hear the Cora. It almost sounds like a voice, right? Singing, because it just has so many chords. This is the instrument that eventually, uh, some would argue that the harp comes from. And also, this is an instrument that influenced a lot of the Spanish guitar, you know, like flamenco. We take a mini trip through the evolution of Latin music with Afro-Mexicano researcher Jorge González. Jorge helps us trace the roots of Latin music back to West Africa. 